Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Increase the days of the king's life, his years for many generations. May he be enthroned in God's presence forever. Appoint your love and faithfulness to protect him. Then I will ever sing in praise of your name and fulfill my vows day after day. This is the word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Lord, we come before you and we open up our hearts before your word. We know that your word is like a double-edged sword and we ask that you would perform a surgery in our hearts. Lord, you know the word that we need tonight. So speak your good word and breathe life and faith into our hearts, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Last week, we began our summer series on the book of Psalms called The Songs of God. And in the coming weeks, we will look at various psalms that talk about the character of God in hopes that these words that we study would shape our faith and motivate our faithfulness. The Psalms, as we said last week, were the Old Testament book of praises used both in private and in public worship. And they're unique in that they aim to form our hearts more so than inform the mind. That does not mean, however, that the Psalms lack substance. In fact, they are rich theology set to a melody for a very practical reason. You see, music is one of the best ways to memorize things. You don't believe me? Just come to my house when Daniel puts on his show. Daniel, my three-year-old, he knows Adele's Hello and One Direction's best song ever, Better Than Me. And I've heard them millions of times thanks to my little ones. Whenever he grabs his mic and steps on to his stage, a little wooden stool that we have in our house, and begins to perform, a piece of me dies. I, I <laughs> talk about parent fail, you know? If my ancestors witnessed that, I, I think they would be ashamed too. One Direction, like really, One Direction. Justin Timberlake maybe, but One Direction, really? In Psalm 23, the text we looked at last week, David talks about the valley of the shadow of death, a difficult place that often God takes us through in order to show us who we really are and what we believe in order that he would draw us closer to himself. And here in Psalm 61, David finds himself in the middle of one. Pain and grief accompany us through these valleys. And we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus said very plainly that in this world you will have trouble. 
Why? Because we live outside of Eden. And we're constantly reminded of this. And many of you, as Glenn prayed, woke up this morning to tragic news of mass shooting in Orlando. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Our world is deeply fractured, and we feel it in our hearts. And no matter how hard we try to recreate Eden with good health, secure finance, intimate relationships, and a successful career, we cannot. Something always manages to ruin it. And sometimes it happens in a blink of an eye. I still remember receiving a phone call from my brother right after a very fun and blessed retreat a number of years ago in St. Louis. Over the phone, I heard my usually funny, lighthearted brother speak in a very serious tone that our mother suffered a minor stroke that left her speech impaired. I felt like I was drowning. And some of you know what I'm talking about. And David certainly did. And in that low place of pain and suffering, he wrote Psalm 61. Sometimes the myth of the tortured artist is not a myth at all. Horatio Spatford, despite losing four of his children in a shipwreck, wrote one of my favorite hymns, It Is Well with my soul. In it, he writes, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows row, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You see what he's saying? Regardless of the circumstance, with God, it is well. Regardless of the circumstance, with God, it is well. We cannot skip over this lightly. We need to allow these words to take deep root into our hearts, especially as we find ourselves wading into a whole lot of mess and not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and wondering when if ever, we're going to make it out of this valley. Instead of substituting or reaching for substitute answers and solutions, what David is saying is that we need to reach out to God with faith, with confidence, knowing that he is able to protect us from the storm that seeks to swallow up our faith. You see... If we, like God, had all wisdom, all power, and all love to manipulate all the details of our lives for our ultimate good, we would find ourselves right where we are. And this is the promise we have in Romans 8.28, is it not? That in all things, our God who is all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving, is committed to working out his glory in us. And so as we unpack Psalm 61, let's do so 
with our eyes fixed on him, who is wanting to draw us to himself, especially those of us in the valley. So that as we see him for who he is and the good plans that he has for us, even in this low place, that we would end this worship service with not just a glimmer of hope, but a confidence deep in our hearts, like David, to be able to worship. Worship our God and to step out into this world with faith and faithfulness that he might be glorified in us. The psalm is divided into two parts, which will serve as an outline for us. So let's take a look. First, we see David's cry. David's cry. According to the Old Testament commentators, David wrote the psalm on his way back from exile. And you would think that's cause for celebration. After all, David is now returning to Jerusalem, to the city of God, and back to his throne. But he says in verse 2, my heart is faint. My heart is faint. In order to understand the backstory, we have to go back and read several chapters, which we were not tonight, in 2 Samuel chapters 15 and following. Basically, let me sum it up for us. Absalom was a troubled youth, and David, his father, didn't help the case. When David learned that Absalom conspired against him by winning the hearts of the people, David and his closest men fled Jerusalem to the other side of Jordan. And Absalom was resolved to finish what he started. He was going to pursue and kill his father. As David's army prepared to go to war, David said to his commanders, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. You see what's going on here? He is torn. He is torn between love for his son and justice for treason. And by the end of the story, we read that Absalom was entangled in the oak and was suspended between heaven and earth. An interesting choice of words, don't you think? And Joab, one of David's generals, thrusts javelins into Absalom's heart, basically ending the rebellion. And when David heard of Absalom's death, this is what the Bible says. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept, saying, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Would I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. You see why David returns to Jerusalem with a heavy heart. He lost his son. And how many times in these few verses does David say, my son, my son, and you can feel his pain every time he says those words. So David does the one thing, the only thing he can do. He prays. In verses 2 and following, he says, lead me to a rock that is higher than I. He is being swallowed up with a whirlwind of emotion in his heart, and he doesn't know what to do or where to go, so he throws himself before the feet of his heavenly Father, basically to say, I don't know what to do. 
God not only hears David's prayer, but he knows David's heart. Because years later, outside of Jerusalem, God, the Father, experienced the pain of losing his son, who also was suspended between heaven and earth on the cross, not for his rebellion, but for ours, so that we may know the Father's love for us. And for those of you looking into Christian faith, let me say this. Christianity is not about merit, about what you can do for God to offer up somehow your righteousness to him, but it's about mercy, that God would reach out to you at a great cost to himself so that you too may know of his love. On the cross, Jesus became sin for us. A sight so unbearable that the Father had to turn his face away. And when Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It crushed him. It crushed him. It's as David said, would I have died and stayed with me? And every normal parent understands the Father's heart. So when the Bible says he knows us, who we are, where we are, and what we are going through, this is not just an empty platitude, but it's a truth. He knows all the details of our lives, and he is able to sympathize with our pain, our suffering, and our grief. So what do we do? When we come before God who understands and knows us, David says we ought to cry out to the Lord. There are different modes of prayers in the Bible, and one of them is crying out to the Lord. Now, what does this mean? I don't know that anyone has a perfect definition for it, but here's my take. Crying out to the Lord, I believe, is pouring out our hearts in desperation before God continually, okay? pouring out our hearts in desperation before the Lord continually. And we see examples of such prayers, not only in the Psalms, but all throughout the Bible. In fact, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 says, Jesus prayed in this way. In the days of his flesh, the text says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. I think Jesus wants us to pray like that. Not all the time, but to develop and cultivate that kind of prayer life. Remember the parable of the persistent widow? The widow brought her request before the wicked judge until he answered. Basically, in the parable, he realized that if he didn't grant her her request, that she would tire him out so because, simply based on that, not because he feared God or cared for this widow, but simply because he didn't want to have to deal with her, he granted her her request. And Jesus' point is very simple. Persevere in prayer. Pray and not give up. You see, on the one hand, faith calls us to present our requests before God and wait on the Lord. But on the other hand, 
That very faith calls us to keep on praying and not give up. And I believe we need to learn to pray like this until God either changes the situation that we are in or he changes our heart. And when we pray, he will hear us. His ears are always inclined to the cries of his people, and we are never beyond the reach of his grace. You see, the Israelites in the Old Testament believed that the temple of God was a house of prayer, and therefore you went and prayed. But they weren't sure if God still heard you if you were far away from Jerusalem. And here is David, far removed from the center of the spiritual epicenter, perhaps on the other side of Jordan, he cries out to the Lord, not knowing if he would have an audience with God. But God comes, and he meets David, and he answers him. We'll get to that in a minute. And perhaps some of you here today, you feel like David, and you would say you are in the ends of the earth. It's been a while since you stepped into a church. You were here because... You feel guilty, maybe. Your friend brought you. Your mom begged you. I don't know. But you're here, and you're not sure what that road back home would look like. God knows your heart. He hears your prayers. And all you have to say is, God, I'm here. I don't know what I'm doing. That's a good place to start. There's much to be said about the five metaphors David uses in his prayer, but let me just say three things quickly as we wrap up this point and move on to our second point. First, the metaphors themselves, the rock, refuge, strong tower, tent, the shelter of your wings, they all actually point to Jesus. Jesus is the rock, the cornerstone, a refuge and a strong tower that the church is built upon. He is the temple where God and man come and meet face to face. And he said of Jerusalem, How I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And all of this sort of comes together in the story of Jesus calming the storm. Remember that? The disciples fear for life until Jesus wakes up from his slumber and he quiets the wind and the waves and now they're deathly afraid of Jesus. They ask, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? We thought he was just a rabbi. But somehow he has power over even nature. And the text basically says that Jesus is the safe place that we can run to and find shelter from the storms of life. Second, with each metaphor, God's protection becomes more and more intimate. David starts with a rock and wraps up with a hen. And in the New Testament, God would do even better. After the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would come and take up residence in our hearts. And he will dwell in us until Christ returns. You can't get any more intimate than that. And thirdly, I want to draw your attention to the phrase, you have been my refuge. You have been my refuge. David likely recalls his time in Masada. 
a southern Judean desert forest, fortress, I'm sorry, where he lived while hiding from Saul. And although Masada is never mentioned by name in the Bible, David refers to it several times as a rock of refuge, my fortress. You see what David is doing even as he prays that prayer? He is going back and recounting all the stories of God's faithfulness. Long before he ever came to the throne, God was faithful to him. Even when he was a nobody, a shepherd boy, tending his father's sheep in the middle of nowhere, God was faithful to him. And he's playing back the melody of grace and allowing that song, that theme to resonate and fill up his heart. And you can see glimpses of hope rising in David's heart even as he prays this prayer. See, nothing enlivens our hope more than the memory of God's past faithfulness. Scholars believe the word Selah, located between verses 4 and 5, is an instrumental interlude. Basically, if you like rock music, it's that three minutes of soloing that the electric guitar does, right? And it had a purpose, okay? Uh, and it allowed for people who are singing this song together in a congregation uh, to meditate, to reflect. I don't know if you do this in your prayer life, but I do it regularly. And Tim Keller in his book, Prayer, uh, really helped me think through this even more and encouraged me, and I commend that book to you. But after pouring out my heart to the Lord for some time, I've run out of words. And in that sacred moment of prayer, in deep connectedness with God, I'm doing heart battle. I'm taking the prayers that I've just offered, the desires and the longings of my heart, but I'm also taking the truth and the promise of God's word, and I am just trying to massage that into my heart, into my unbelieving heart. And as you wrestle through it, the Spirit is working. You know what I'm talking about? He enlivens your heart, and faith is born. And those words that you didn't even want to hear before you started praying because it sounded so cliche-ish or you dismissed it because you're like, yeah, whatever. I want something more substantive, something more real. All of a sudden, those words come deep into your heart and they give you life. If you don't know that kind of prayer, I encourage you to cultivate a prayer life and to incorporate meditation, reflection into your prayer life and allow God to really work in your heart. Don't cheapen yourself by simply saying amen and getting up and walking away. I think Charles Spurgeon's insight is really helpful. He says, sometimes when we do not receive comfort in our prayers, when we are broken and cast down, even after having prayed a lot, that is when we are really wrestling and prevailing in prayer. 
people of God, let me encourage us as we think about growing in prayer, not only for ourselves, but for our nation and for the world that is so badly in need of his grace and peace. To commit to a life of prayer that extends beyond my little circle. That we would be the people on our knees for others. Starting right here in this congregation with the people we know, we do life with. And that our prayers would extend to this nation and to the world. And that kind of prayer requires commitment. We have to learn to wrestle and prevail. So that's David's prayer, his cry. Let's wrap up then with David's confidence. I guarantee you this is much shorter, okay? I promise. So stay with me. God in his mercy answered David. Remember, David prays from wherever he is, be it other side of Jordan or the outskirts of Jerusalem, but certainly on his way to Jerusalem, unsure of this prayer, whether or not it's going to make it to the throne. But God heard and he answers. How do we know? You see, after the word Selah, that break, the psalm takes on a completely different tone. Okay? Look at the progression. Verse 1, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. It's riddled with anxiety, fear, uncertainty. And then you get to verse 5, and he says, For you, O God, have heard my vow. There's already a hint of confidence that he has an audience with God, that his prayers have been attended to. And then in verse 8, look at this. Then I will ever sing in praise of your name and fulfill my vows day after day. What happened? What triggered the change? I think the answer is in verses 6 and 7. Listen to what David says. Increase the days of the king's life, his years for many generations. May he be enthroned in God's presence forever. Appoint your love and faithfulness to protect him. Did you notice that the I gives way to the king? And all of a sudden here, David is no longer praying about himself, but for somebody else. You see what happened as David is meditating, praying during that instrumental interlude? David realized that his hope, hope for a broken world, hope for a broken nation, a hope for a family that is so fractured by sin, and even hope for his own redemption is tied to a divine king who will reign forever in steadfast love and faithfulness. That the answer is not himself and the work that he can do not even the policies that he can set in place, but the answer is in the one who is to come. And this king will indeed come, and he will pay the ultimate price to secure our hope. He gave his life as a ransom to redeem his people and before he was seated on the throne, he was lifted up on the cross. 
And through his sacrifice, we can now look ahead to the coming days and coming years and the coming age with hope, knowing that everything we feel that is wrong about today will be made new. And as God's people, this is our hope. For those of us in the valley, as we wade through our pain, our sorrow, our grief, with questions and uncertainty, I want you to lift up your head and fix your eyes on Christ who will come, who will return to restore Eden and it will usher in an era that would fill all the longings of our hearts. And as we await the ultimate fulfillment of these promises that we read about in the scripture, I think we are called to that, to live out this hope, this peace, right here in this city. So let's be people who, like David, would look ahead with confidence and in the meantime, today, commit to saying, I will worship. And through my worship, I will reflect your peace, your joy, your glory that will one day fill my flesh. Let's pray together. God, we come before you and we confess that so often in the valley, we don't know what to do. We try to problem solve, but we quickly run out of resource and we are left to look to you. And we praise you that you are patient with us even in the valley. Give us faith, Lord, to look to you even now. Give us faith, we ask, so that our sorrow will turn to joy, our pain, to praise. In Christ's name, amen.